Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Matthew Liebman from Vista Group. I'm Ryan Preventure from Movio. And Simon's off sick today. He's got the man flu. Um, I should say that any man flu that brings an Aussie down is no doubt 11 out of 10. And you might ask why the flu doesn't go to 10 and you just make 10 worse. But we're not going into that spinal tap spiral. That's fair. <laughs> so, look, we've got a really busy week this week, Ryan. We've got Jackie Brenneman and Patrick Corcoran from NATO and the Cinema Foundation associated with NATO to have a great chat about their state of the industry report that got released. So with that in mind, why don't we just jump straight into the numbers? I'll talk box office in Simon's place and we'll kick off with Shazam! Fury of the Gods, which generated $65.5 million from 78 territories globally. Unfortunately, that's a fair way behind the initial instalment of Shazam, which pulled in $155.5 million worldwide in its opening weekend. Uh, it was $35 million from the international box office, and that was down from $102 million for the opening weekend of the first instalment. If there's a single territory that had the biggest bearing on that, it was China. It generated 30.4 mil for the original Shazam and just 4.3 mil for Fury of the Gods. Of course, Russia's off the table as well, uh, and it pulled in 5.2 million from the original. And other markets like the UK, Ireland and Mexico were down more than 30%. That soft opening translated, albeit a little less extremely, to the domestic market, where Shazam pulled in 30.5 million. It did so from slightly fewer screens than the first instalment. It was on 4,071 screens, whereas the original was 4,217. And while that might have had a slight bearing, it wouldn't be the difference between the initial grosses and this most recent one. Is there anything you can tell us from the audience that might explain where we've seen this, this difference in the domestic market? You know, what's what's interesting here is you'd kind of think maybe the audience has adjusted and that could be the reason why some of the box office has changed, but it really hasn't all that much. So first, let's look at the comparable films. Of course, you have the original Shazam. You have the newest Ant-Man, Black Adam, the newest Black Panther, Doctor Strange that came out last year and Thor that came out last year, but included was Morbius and even 65 from last weekend. What we found was even though we're still coming out of COVID and there are some people that haven't returned, the frequency of the moviegoers were almost exactly the same. And I'm just going to break down through this because I think it is sort of interesting. And we're comparing uh, this Shazam to the previous Shazam that obviously came out before the pandemic. 22% were infrequent moviegoers compared to 21% for the original Shazam. Occasionals were 39 to 38%. Frequency was 34% to 39%, and very frequent was 6% to 3%. So the, the frequency of the very frequent was and the frequent were a little bit off, but honestly, the numbers are pretty much the same. And I, I think you saw some people who just like coming to the movies, coming back out. Certainly families came back out for this one, and we're going to see a big, hopefully, surge in families coming back out for uh, Super Mario Brothers in a few weeks. Age demographics were exactly the same, the same with gender. 67% male for, for this one compared to 66% male for the original Shazam. So if you were going to try to find something in the demographics of the audience, there really wasn't anything here to, that, that jumped out and said, this is a real reason why people stayed back a little bit. 
So, uh, you know, hopefully it has a it has a reasonable holdover from week to week. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think what you've, you've suggested there is that the composition of the pie or the pie chart is identical. It's just a smaller pie this time. Um, and I think some of that might even be reflected in the the audience feedback. So, look, reviewers didn't love this one as much as they did the first. When you look at Rotten Tomatoes, the original scored a remarkable 90 percent. This one's sitting at 52 percent. At the same time, those people who made the effort to come and see Fury of the Gods seem to like it a little bit more than those who saw the first one. Fury of the Gods is sitting at 88% versus 82% for the first one. And maybe there's something in that, that there's a self-selection of those who particularly like the franchise who showed up for the second. Uh, Cinema score was a little more um, hard marking. The sequel, Fury of the Gods, got a B plus versus A for the original. But, you know, as somebody who went and saw it, and I must admit I'm not in the core DC Shazam audience, it was hard for me to discern much of a difference between the two. Um, you know, uh, if you liked the first one, it kind of felt to me you'd like the second, and if you didn't, then this one wasn't going to change your mind. But without giving away too many spoilers, there is a post credit sequence that definitely sets up future installments. Whether the economics of this particular release or James Gunn now controlling the DC Universe uh, allows it to proceed, I guess in the mind of the filmmakers uh, behind Fury of the Gods, they see Shazam continuing into other films. But one of the things I, I wouldn't mind your opinion on is, you know, it's a bit of pop psychology, but to what extent do you think James Gunn's opinions about the DC universe has come in and tainted some of the films that precede him? And, you know, he's sort of signaled to fans that everything but the upcoming Flash film is kind of irrelevant, probably most uh, notably with Black Adam, but a little bit across the whole prior DC universe do you think this is turning off uh, audiences when the new maestro is saying, you know, I'm drawing a line in the sand, really, with Superman Legacy, which he announced he's directing uh, earlier this week? I think it might have some impact on some big DC fans, uh, some people who really this is this is their bread and butter. I think for families, no, I don't. I, they they may or may not even know that James Gunn is in control and all of this going on. So, I it and. And again, this is a different film. This has a very different feel than the rest of DC, right? It 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 has it has this younger audience potentially in it, and I I think I don't know if that and I could be wrong. I'm very willing to admit I'm wrong on this. I I think that family aspect is is not is not being seen so much with big DC fans. It doesn't help. It certainly doesn't help. I, I I'll go as far as to say that whether it had you know, an effect of 15 to $20 million at the American box office. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Yeah, that's a fair point. And look, regardless, maybe these are the teething problems that Warners and the DC universe need to do ahead of the major reset and the head of the unification that, you know, they brought in an accomplished filmmaker like James Gunn to fix in the first place. So maybe this is just the gear switching to the, the new future, uh, which looks like it will start with that Superman legacy. Let me just whip through the other titles that held in in the top grosses of the past week. Most notably, Screen 6 now sits at 116 mil worldwide after adding another 28.8 mil globally this weekend. Internationally, it added 11.3 mil, so the non-domestic total sits at 40 mil from 53 markets. Domestically, there was another 17.5 mil that represented a 61% decline, but it sits in the domestic market at $76 million and it will exceed lifetime domestic gross next week and internationals very close behind. 
And just a note on that drop, it might seem like a lot. It's not necessarily for a horror film. And the drop of the screen that came out last year was 59%. This is very much in the range. So anyone that's sort of kind of yelling, eh, this is dropping a lot, it's in the range of horror films and certainly in the range of the film that came out last year. Yeah, and the glass half full is that it's dropping at a similar percentage off a much larger base. So no doubt Scream 7 is um, in the in the wings. Be interesting to see if they can turn that round in another 12 months like they did 6 after 5's release last year. Talking of sequels, um, Creed 3 continues to keep on. It added 15.4 mil domestically. It was a decline of 44%. Now sits at 127.7 mil cube in the domestic market. It's um, at 96.6 mil internationally, so we're looking almost at a quarter bill globally, 224.3 mil to date, and Japan hasn't released the title yet. So it has already exceeded the domestic and lifetime grosses of Creed 2 and Creed after three weekends. And as I think we've all probably read, there is a Creed universe in development with both TV and film productions. And I've kind of noticed that there's a bit of that whole Fast and Furious approach where one fr one film installment's bad guys is reconciled at the end and everyone's friends await in the next bad guy which means Damien the Jonathan uh, Majors character and the Drago son from the last one are now starting to come round and maybe they then get to populate uh, the Creed universe as heroes. The other um, title that released last week, 65, coming into its second weekend, added $5.8 million. It's down 53%. It sits domestically at $22.4 million, currently at $38.8 million worldwide. Uh, one of those tickets worth of revenue came from me. Saw it on the weekend. Um, the concept of lasers and dinosaurs is definitely there. Adam Driver is always watchable. Probably lacked a little bit of that X factor to lift it up and above with so many other competitive titles. Um, Ant-Man and the Wasp going into week five, crossed the 200 million mark at domestically, now sits at 205.8 mil after adding 4.1 mil this last weekend. It's fast approaching the half billion worldwide. Uh, we'll see if it gets there with the other big releases coming out, but it's sitting at 462.6 mil. It still lags behind the last installment's lifetime. It's about 10 or 11 mil behind domestically but it's 150 mil behind internationally. And I guess Bob Iger's statement at the recent Morgan Stanley conference asking whether you need a third or fourth instance of some of these characters or whether it's time to introduce new ones, I guess that's echoing louder and louder in the corridors of Disney and in Marvel. But there is a good thing, I had a check today, there are more than 70,000 characters currently profiled in the Marvel fandom character database. If it's time for Ant-Man to go off into pasture, I don't think there'll be any shortage of finding a next generation to come on through. Cocaine Bear still goes on pretty strongly. Uh, it's, it's had a, only a decline of 38% this past weekend. It added another 3.9 mil for 58.5 mil domestic and sits at just under 75 mil worldwide. Terrific response for a rated film like that with modest production values. But the other one I want to call out is its, um, its compatriot being released four weeks ago, and that's Jesus Revolution, which will make most of its money domestically, but it's on track to cross the 50 mil mark, adding three and a half mil this past weekend, off just 31.8%, sitting at 45 and a half million dollars. So all up, Ryan, a really solid weekend at the box office, even if the grosses were distributed a little differently from what we wanted. 
you know, it was really good. And again, looking at those two movies that you discussed, the last ones, I mean, not not part of franchises, not sequels. They are original IPs, and that's that's a really, I think, good sign for box office uh, moving forward for the rest of the year. Absolutely. Hey, so Ryan, as I, I heralded at the top of this podcast, I had an amazing chat with Jackie Brenneman and Patrick Corcoran. They're both behind the State of the Industry report that was just released by the Cinema Foundation, part of NATO itself. Let's uh, turn our attention to that chat right now. Today, I'm, I'm delighted to welcome back Jackie Brenneman to the podcast. Jackie's the Executive Vice President and General Counsel of NATO and also the President of NATO Cinema Foundation. And I'd like to welcome for the first time Patrick Corcoran, who's VP of Communications and Chief Communications Officer for NATO. Uh, last week, Patrick and Jackie and the Foundation released an incredibly comprehensive report on the state of the cinema industry. And I was just saying to both of them before we recorded that walking through the Vista Group offices, the number of screens I've seen the report up on or printed out on desks is overwhelming and just a testament to the wealth of information. So I wanted to have both of them come on today and share key findings about the report and what it all sort of means for the industry as a whole. So welcome back, Jackie, and welcome for the first time, Patrick. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hey, look, there's so much to talk about here. So why don't we just jump right in, uh, but with a little bit of context. Before we get into the details, could you give us just a brief overview of the Cinema Foundation and its purpose for those who might not be familiar with it? Yes, I will go as fast as I can, though I could speak about the foundation at nauseum, and I have many times. Uh, so the goal of the foundation was as we were coming out of the pandemic, it became really clear that the cinema industry was more than just movie theater owners, right? There's a, an entire sector of the economy that's dependent upon the success of exhibition. Uh, but yet the way that our industry is structured, we're all kind of siloed. We have different groups to work on different interests, but not something, not any work, any collective body that can work on the issues together. And so the idea was born to create a foundation, a 501c3, that was attached to NATO in the sense that we were furthering NATO's mission of advancing the movie going experience while at the same time having a separate board, separate budget, so we could bring in other stakeholders. We could bring in studios, vendors, suppliers. We could bring in the creative community. All of the different groups that depend on the success of exhibition could sit together and work on common areas of interest. And so we have five key different areas of focus. So we have kind of over everything is data and research. And that's, of course, what we'll, we'll talk about in much more detail today. Um, but everything the foundation does should should have a data and or research component to it. Uh, then we also have uh, industry promotion and creative community outreach. So you could see our handiwork on uh, National Cinema Day, for example, where we brought 8.1 million people to the movies uh, on a single day last September and also sparked kind of a global movement on that same day or shortly thereafter. Um, we have charities, which is us working with Will Rogers primarily, but also amplifying other industry charities and their missions, especially those that help the employees of our industry. We have careers, education, and diversity. So we want to be able to promote the industry as a great place to start and grow a career. And we also want to help lift up our employees and also think about diversity, not just who, who works for our theaters, who our audiences are, who leads our theaters, and then the growth within the industry. So it's, what's, it's behind the screen, it's on the screen, it's in the theaters, and it's in the back of the house. Um, and we also have, finally, the Center for Innovation and Technology, 
which is kind of two different think tanks to, to with all industry groups working on innovation and technology measures that we think will advance the industry. That's a great summary. So why don't we transition then to the pillar that looks after data and research and talk about the report. And to me, the report felt like a bit of a, a state of the union for our industry. So uh, as is often done in a state of the union, how would you characterize the state today? Uh, I, it's, it's exhilarating. I'm completely optimistic. The word bullish has been said so many times in the past couple of weeks that it's, uh, it's almost feeling overplayed, but that's, I think the sentiment I'm hearing, not just internally, not just within my own self, but when everyone I speak to, um, the numbers are telling a compelling story. Uh, and it's starting to feel organic to people. People are feeling that excitement when they go to the theaters. People are feeling that excitement when they see the slate. They are beginning to feel excitement and joy again that they haven't felt in a long time, right? The pandemic kills hope in a lot of us, not just in our industry, right? Just kind of for everyone. And so when you start to have these positive signs and these communal moments that are starting to really resonate, it's exciting. And so I, I can't help but you know, continue to use the word bullish. I am absolutely bullish. And so is everyone else. So are the studios. So are the audiences. So are the vendors. Everyone is feeling bullish. And we seem to be going less from one tent pole to the other to, you know, just as a movie lover, I'm struggling to fit everything in. Those B-grade titles or second run titles, the ones that make the difference between a great year and a good year, seem to be coming back and, and more and more being dated uh, by the day. Oh, we've got, you know, movies on the same weekend now, big movies competing. And, you know, I had a, I, I was at a meeting with a studio exec, uh, you know, a few weeks ago and they were like, well, that's going to be a real test. It's having two big movies on the same weekend. And, you know, it's, it's so exciting. And it's so funny that we're, that there's still any nervousness when it's the, and, and the more we have diverse titles, I mean, you talk about movies are back, right. And it's not just tent poles. We do have an incredibly diverse slate that is also overperforming. I mean, Creed three did incredibly well, right? And there's going to be more and more of that this year. You know, audiences we've we've long said it, right? We need diverse titles for diverse audiences. We can't live on tent poles alone. But there was a concern certain audiences were coming back. Our thesis had been, well, they're not coming back because you're not programming for those audiences. And 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 it, and we were right. As soon as we're programming for diverse audiences, everyone's coming back. They are thrilled to, and then they get to see trailers for all the upcoming movies and get more excited and come back again. And so that raises, I guess, one of the the more um, I don't know the the more dramatic headlines that's come from the report, and that was around screen closure. And I, I really want to have a discussion around that in context because, first of all, globally, screen count has gone up since twenty nineteen. And in North America, it's reduced by 5%. And given what we've been through, that's pretty remarkable. And if it was more than was what was required from a, a brutally economic perspective, then people wouldn't find the local theater to drive the box office outperformance for Creed and everything else. So I was wondering if you could put that in a macro perspective. I, I don't want to trivialize the heartache for the individuals who might be in a closed theater. That, that's incredibly important. But let's take that macroeconomic perspective and what does it mean for the industry if if potentially anything <laughs> well i first of all i would i would argue that it probably doesn't mean anything it's hard to it's hard to contextualize 2000 screens um you know the theory from from many during the pandemic had been we were going to lose half of our screens 
Um, that certainly didn't happen. And, and of course, the government assistance was a huge part of that. Um, but from what we understand, uh, you know, the, the screens that have closed, we don't even know if those are permanent closures or, you know, if another, you know, one exhibitor has let a, an underperforming screen go or they've, you know, exited the business and another entrance is coming in. We, we truly have no idea. I will note, though, that many people that were experts in this business and in the screen count uh, pre-pandemic believed that the domestic marketplace was over-screened and that it would benefit our market to have fewer screens, fewer than the two, uh, more than the 2,000 that we lost, indeed. Um, I, I will not opine on whether they're right or wrong, um, you know, whether we are over-screened or under-screened, but that was certainly a, an opinion that many experts held. And, and your other point about the growth internationally is really important, right? We have a mature market in the United States, but there are other markets that still have room to grow and they are indeed growing. The optimism is everywhere. And there are territories that are doing better than they did pre-pandemic, like Nigeria, because Nigeria did not have enough screens. They've added screens, they have more local t content, and they, they did better last year than they did in 2019. And Japan was at, you know, like 90 something percent of their 2019 level. So there are markets that are still growing. Um, and so I, I really do think that that needs to be put in context. And one other thing is when you look at the domestic marketplace, don't just, don't just look at the screens, look at the investments exhibitors are making, right? So we kept most of our screens and the screens that we have are improving. The exhibitors are making incredible investments in seating and premium beverage offerings and improving their screens and their sound. And so, and there's just a lot of growth and optimism. We polled our members and a third of them said that they planned to grow their screen count. So there's, I, I, I really don't think we can take too much of that 2000 screen count and think, I think really anything of it. I think time will tell, um, but I think we should look at the quality of our screens. And to add some color to that, as, as Jackie was saying, yeah, that, that uh, we've had members who have been growing throughout the pandemic, who have been building and enhancing what they have. Uh, and the, the uh, conception of too many screens is a difficult one to get your head around. It's like, it isn't just a number, it's which screens and where. You know, is it, is, it a, is it a screen that has 35 seats, a screen that has 300 seats? Is it a the only entertainment complex in, in town that has a thousand seats, right? So it's, it's really, really different depending on the marketplace, depending on what they're offering. And it, it's, it's kind of a, a blunt hammer to, to sort of look at the industry and say too many screens without identifying where and when and why. Yeah, I would agree. And I guess the other element on top of all the really valid points you make is there's a difference between a building closing and a screen going dark. And if it's being repurposed into some other entertainment um, entertainment option in the building that drives admissions for the remaining screens, that's a really valid use of space as well. So, um, you know, for, for everything you've said there, it feels, and as backed up by the box office that we've seen in recent weeks, it feels like this is a, a nothing stat that just seemed to be grabbed because of the, I don't know, the, the hysterical media value of something like this. Right, and you know, actually to that point, you know, the fact that movies are overperforming the way they are does mean that audiences are finding theaters. There are screens for the audience. They are going, they are finding them. So we're certainly not 
leaving consumers out in the cold. You know, they are able to find, they are seeking out theaters and finding them. Absolutely. Look, one of the reasons I've always thought that cinema is still here, despite the, the range of competitors that have popped up over the prior hundred years compared to say, I don't know, chain record stores or bookshops, many of which have lower footprints or have gone altogether, is our industry's willingness to invest and adapt. And Jack, you touched on some of the, the metrics that have come out through the report around exhibitors intent, but can you talk about what you found in terms of the industry's desire to invest in premises over the coming years? I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's really exciting. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of statistics in the report about the percentage of exhibitors that say that they're going to improve their seats or improve their screens. But really what it, what it speaks to is exhibitors following their customers too. Customers are changing. I, I think it's really important to differentiate ourselves from something like a record store even because our art form has to be experienced communally, right? What we offer, you can, you sure, you can watch a movie at home, but you don't rent the movie from our theaters, right? So you go to a theater to have a shared experience, not to go pick out something on your own. You go to, to be with everyone, with a bunch of other people from your community that have chosen the same movie and same showtime, and you know you're going to be with strangers experiencing something. Um, so I do think we are different than kind of anything else, right? We're still we're also different even than a restaurant where you're in the same building as these other people, but you're ordering different food. You're you have a different server. You're having separate conversations. You are not experiencing that in the same way. So we do have something very unique. But that said. It's our job to always adapt and meet the needs of consumers who want to be out experiencing something communally. We have to make that appealing, right? And consumers are telling us, hey, we love technology. We think it's so exciting to watch a movie on the biggest screen possible and have the, the, the sound be really loud. You know, it's not my personal cup of tea, but th we, we're seeing this. Those tickets sell out first, right? They are choosing the premium. Consumers are choosing premium experiences over and over again. So Exhibitors are evolving and adapting to follow those consumers who want that. They're providing alcohol because people want to drink. And now that they now that there's some theaters that offer alcohol, they want them everywhere. They just, you know, that, that becomes part of the experience to them. And so exhibitors are getting liquor licenses and figuring all of that out and hiring new staff and building restaurants within their theaters so that consumers can have a dinner and a movie experience that they that they want that they are paying for that they are willing to come out for so i think what we're seeing is movie theater owners are more and more understanding that they're a central part of their community you know they're speaking to their consumers more directly they're doing their own marketing they have their own social media right the top 50 exhibitors alone have 40 million people that they can reach on on social media like that's, that's impressive. And that certainly didn't exist 10 years ago. Right. And the loyalty program data that you also see in the report indicates again, more investment in figuring out who your own specific consumer is and building your business around what your community wants, not what the movie theater experience generically has to be. And that's, I think that's really cool. Yeah. Excellent. Look, those of us within the industry are, are generally frustrated by the public and media perception that cinema going is expensive. Uh, but your research into average ticket price really did demonstrate that cinema remains affordable, potentially more affordable in real terms than prior decades. What what did you find? Well, what? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we we do a, a, an annual survey uh, that we've been doing for for a couple decades now, 
and it and it basically does a survey of the sales and the number of tickets sold among. Uh, we have minimum requirements for what we put out. It's got to be at least sixty percent of the screens. It has to be all of the top ten circuits, and it it basically covers all tickets sold in in that. So this year it's about sixty seven percent of the screens uh, reported back to us. And we came up with a, a number that was uh, nine dollars and fifty three cents. I'm oh, sorry, ten dollars and fifty three cents uh, for the average ticket sold, which means out of all tickets, whether it's matinee prices, premium, uh, senior citizens, the the prime ticket time on Friday night or Saturday night, all of that goes into the mix. And that price is actually less than the rate of inflation since 2019, the last time that we published a survey. Uh, the price that was nine sixteen in today's dollars, it would be ten dollars and fifty eight cents. Uh, going back to nineteen seventy one, when the ticket price was about a dollar sixty five, uh, adjusted for inflation, that ticket would be eleven dollars and ninety three cents now. And that's with all of the extra things we offer that we did not offer in nineteen seventy one. Right? It's, it's a hugely different experience, a huge number of options. The seating is better, the sound is better, the visuals are better, and you know so. The idea that it's expensive, yes, the top line ticket price, okay, it's over $10. That seems like a lot. Uh, but in reality, in terms of if you think about everything else you pay for, if you pay three fifty for a cup of coffee or $5 or $6 if you want it, like a big milkshake instead, it's going to be, you know, that gives you a sense of what you're getting and how, how much you experience from that. Um, so we feel really confident that as uh, and, and one of the really interesting things is that, as Jackie noted, that people are gravitating toward a premium experience. You know, they're seeking that out, and that actually drives the average ticket price a bit higher. And if we got, you know, the additional thirty-three percent of screens that we don't cover, my guess is the average ticket price would be a much lower because it's from the smaller circuits, from mom and pops, it's from people in smaller markets who are charging a lot less. Uh, so you know, it's 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 market by market. I mean. The interesting thing is the most avid movie-going communities, markets, are New York and Los Angeles, which are the two most expensive places in the country. So it really depends where you are and, and what you want to go see and how you want to go see it. Uh, but we're, we're really encouraged. I mean, one of, one of the, I think, weird silver linings of the whole pandemic was that people needed to experiment with what they were putting on screens. So you had big commercial places showing repertory movies showing art house we had art houses showing blockbusters we had people putting you know intimate dramas up on their premium format screens and people love it you know so you're seeing people come out for the opening weekend of you know the fablemans or something else that's not a big huge epic or you know any everything everywhere all at once people watch that on premium format screens and we have to have that flexibility and i think we we were looking to the studios as well to be flexible about what they program, what kind of screens they put it on, and how many screens and how far out into the marketplace they go. Uh, there, there's really no reason not to go as wide as humanly possible now with the, with the movies that are coming out. Yeah, and I would frame pricing as, as value more than anything else, right? I mean, I think we can talk about our movies too expensive all we want, but consumers are going, right? And, they're, and we can talk about concessions are too expensive, but consumers are buying them. So the question really then does become about value. And like Patrick said, people are picking the most expensive format over and over because 
they find that valuable. They find it very exciting if they're leaving their house and watching, a, especially like a tent pole, which was, you know, those dominated the market last year. So our average ticket price certainly incorporates that. But those people that want to go see those tent poles are choosing to go in the PLF, right? Because they find that to be the best experience. They find there to be value there. And I think, you know, when we see more family titles in the market, which we're going to see this year, you know, you're going to see them gravitating probably more towards the Tuesday discount because when you've got a bunch of kids, is it about the technology or is it about hanging out with your kids and, and relaxing for a little while? Is that the value? So I think different consumers have different reasons that they find value in the movie going experience. And even with different who they're going with also changes that, right? If you're going for a date, you're probably going to want to pick a theater that has a recliner and wine and feels more intimate. Whereas again, if you're going with your kids, you just want somewhere where they can run around and not mess things up and you don't have to feel guilty about it. And like, you can just close your eyes for a little while they watch a movie. Right. So I think our members are doing a really good job. The movie, the movie theater owners are doing a really good job of trying to have different value propositions for different audiences. Yeah. A range of experiences and a range of movies. I mean, one of the things that we've been saying is we don't ever want to say to our customers, we don't have that for you here this week. Because you don't know when they're going, you know, is, is it a particular weekend where people will only watch blockbusters? I don't know, you know, what day on the calendar that is. People will watch whatever they want to watch and we have to have it available for them. That's a great point. And it was something that was broken out in the report. I think it was literally a headline. When the movies are there, the audience is there. Can you elaborate on how the, the data has demonstrated that supply and demand um, uh, ratio? Yeah. Um, and, and Jackie filled in on this whenever you feel like it. One of the things we, we started noticing, and we actually noticed it to a degree back in 2021, was that the box office was tracking very closely with the number of wide releases that were in the market, even though everything was depressed because, you know, markets were closed down or there were restrictions and everything else. There weren't a whole lot of movies or there was a day and date. There was a real track between the number of releases that were on 2000 screens or more and the percentage of box office that they took in. It was almost identical in 2022 to what it was in 20, in 2019. And their share of the box office of overall everything was also very close together within two or three points of it. So it's, it's an incredibly strong signal. I mean, we had basically about 63.5% of the movies on wide release in 2022 that we had in 2019. And we had about 64.5% of the box office tracked almost, you know, movie per movie. And on average per movie, we actually made more per title in 2022 than we did in 2019, about $2 million more than, than in the previous time. So, I mean, clearly the movies, when they're out there, people go to see. What we get, it's, it seems to be so structural, in fact, that frankly, everybody makes more money by releasing more movies, right? You, you need, if you're only going to have a certain percentage of movies bringing in a certain amount of business, by nature, if you have more movies, you will have more business. And that extends to the non-temples, the non-wide releases, right? They they actually, weirdly enough, in, in 2022, had a slightly higher percentage of total box office than they did in 2019. So I, it's really encouraging. The studios know it. The studios have been saying it themselves. I mean, we've, we've been talking with them for months and months and months, talking in the press and pointing people to this to really think about it. And, you know, we have studio chairmen who are basically being interviewed and saying, you know, if you have 35% fewer movies, you'll have 35% fewer box office. And it's, 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 it's really true. 
and we're really encouraged. Um, I think this is something that Jackie should really speak to because part of what our goal here with this report is, is to understand the data that we can all act on and all understand. And, and talk a little bit, Jackie, about how we sort of went to everybody with this data. Yeah, I mean, so the goal here, like I said, the foundation is for the whole industry. So it's not just NATO reporting on what NATO thinks matters. This is about vetting this and getting the buy-in from, from all sectors of the industry. So we can all agree that this is reliable information. And, you know, we're not just telling a story about 2022. We're setting the stage for 2023 and beyond. And so while we while we had really compelling, clear evidence about the, you know, movie for movie, you know, way that we tell about the box office, like that's really important. But then we included 2023 numbers. And where I got those numbers, you know, first we looked at Comscore. What is Comscore list for 2000 screens or more from each of the major studios? And then I asked each studio and I said, this is what we're going to say for you. Is this the right number? And the only pushback I got was, no, that's not right. We're doing more. Put us down for more movies, you know. And you know, so we have now 107 of the, of what we have how we define these wide releases, 2,000 or more screens for two, for 2023, which is just seven shy of what we had in 2019. And we know there's probably more to come, especially for Q4. So again, that's a 50% increase. And we saw with some of the studios, a hundred percent increase in how, in their output. So this is not just movie theaters saying, we believe that movie theaters are the best place to make money. This is studio saying, we agree. Here are more movies. Yeah. I've been really heartened by the fact, not only yeah, the point you made about more movies in theaters begets more movie going and, and bounces people back and forth through trailering and so on. But the studio commentary that the downstream revenue is obviously better with a theatrical release is another layer to see um, them encouraged to put more movies back in theaters. Yeah. And on that point, you know, we, we had been looking at the streaming data, right? It, not too long ago, the top 10 information started to be made public on, on most of the streaming platforms. And so we started analyzing that and it became very clear, you know, I mean, like the crazy spreadsheets we were making, doing all of this work, it was really clear that the top titles in the home and the ones that stayed on the top 10 week after week after week were movies that had had strong theatrical releases and exclusive theatrical releases. So, and, and many of them were years old um, and they were still dominating the streaming charts. And so we took this information two studio partners and we, we we did a data presentation to them as kind of a sneak preview of the report and we wanted to make sure that what we were what we were seeing on these publicly available websites was felt right to them right does this kind of meet does this kind of track what you're seeing and they agree that that was pretty close you know i mean they're going to have their own way of measuring top 10 um but the way that these websites work is public information and they they agree that these these theatrical titles were dominating on the streaming platforms and so that's really helpful information and like patrick said that's because of the pandemic that we got to have that right we got to live in an environment where people had no choice but to watch in the home you know there were markets that were closed for over a year los angeles included right the only way to watch movies is at home. And yet when they had the choice, when people had the choice to watch a brand new movie in their home, they were still choosing the prequel or, you know, another theatrical movie. I, I you know, just kind of 
interesting points that I just thought were funny. Like it, while I was looking through the data were things like Hocus Pocus 2 played on the top 10 for Disney for seven weeks. And during that same time frame, Hocus Pocus 1 was on the, was on the charts for 22 weeks. The same thing happened with the kind of day and date Godzilla Kong movie on HBO Max. It drove interest in the prequels over the new release. And so because consumers somehow believe that if a movie is released theatrically first and exclusively, it has more value wherever you watch it. And that's wonderful to know. And also in the report. So yeah, if you haven't read it, if you're not, if you don't work at Vista and you haven't read it yet, uh, I really encourage you to dig into it. There's some very interesting insights that, that tell us what the audience wants. And, and one of the things they're telling us is they want more movies too. I mean, when we're looking at what they, what they watch when they're in streaming and what the value they get in theatrical, they also value, you know, series finales being shown in movie theaters and that they're willing to pay for that. And, you know, concert, live concerts, the BTS concert did huge business over just two showtimes and it did it around the world and did a huge amount of business here in the U.S. So they're, they're the, you know, the, the audience is telling us they want more of those different things, but also in terms of movies, more from a bunch of different genres, not just, you know, the comic book heroes, not just action movies. They want comedy. They want horror. They want romance. There's a whole range of things that they're looking for. And is it the whole audience? No, it isn't. But the big audience is made up out of smaller audiences, right? And and we need that whole range of movies, that whole range of moviegoers. So we get the people who go more often, one more time, that'd be great. If we're offering them more movies, they will. Chris Aronson always says, you don't have to make a movie for everyone, but you have to make a movie for someone. <laughs> yeah, that's a great quote. A absolutely. I think that's a great place to, to finish. We've, we've taken up a lot of your time. Patrick, you've alluded a couple of times how much more's in the report. We've had a long conversation and only scratched the surface, so I can only encourage everyone to go to natoonline.org, download a version, uh, get into the details of what we've talked about, but see all the other information we didn't get time to today. Uh, it's, it's well worth everyone's time to look at it. You know, we've got a huge film coming out this weekend from Lionsgate. We've got John Wick 4 coming out. And Simon gave us some information before he was sick today that the pre-sales will double of what John Wick 3 had at the same stage domestically four days out before release. That is a fantastic prediction for what should be a really, really strong opening. So hopefully it reaches those numbers and has some fantastic box office to get us as we start to begin to close out March and look towards April. Look, I, I can only um, ex express how excited I am. This is one of the few nearly three hour films that I've seen reviews for where everyone has written that the time is justified and that the action scenes are off the charts. So, you know, I guess aside from programming, uh, scheduling challenges of long films, especially when uh, some of these other titles like Creed and Scream uh, are holding on and hopefully Shazam has a good hold into its next week. Aside from that, um, it's great to hear that there is a long film that earns its staying power. It's going to be great and I think uh, audiences are going to love it and 93% certified fresh. That's not too shabby either. Not too bad at all. But why don't we see if we're right next week, Ryan? Um, hopefully Simon is back with, uh, you know, some Vicks rub on his chest and a bit of uh, cold and flu tablet in his system. And it'll be the three of us to see how John Wick uh, performs when we get together next week behind the screens. 
Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow Movio, Numero, and Vista Group on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna.